For those of you who have been with us for the last couple of weeks since the beginning of the year, you know we've been in a uh, little ex- exploration of the book of Genesis, especially the first four chapters. Um, we're doing this because as a setup for a larger series that we want to investigate through the theme, Taking Good Care, of this idea that we're created to be stewards of the good gifts of God's creation. But before we can get to how we do that, one of the things that we wanted to, to try to look at is why we do that. And Genesis those first four chapters in Genesis give us some um, foundational values, I think, to what God is intending in creation. Has, has anybody been here for the last couple of weeks? Has it been helpful the way we're looking at it? Yes. It's kind of new, you know, in a way. What we're trying to do is, is step out of our Greek shoes and put on Hebrew shoes as best we can to as best we can enter into the world through the lens of the people that first received the, the stories, the um, Israelites, just after they were released from captivity. And for me personally, just having grown up in a particular tradition that approached Genesis in a very particular way, this has been liberating. Um, and just like, it, it feels like we're taking... Um, constraints off of the story and allowing it to just kind of continue to, you know, kind of iterate as it goes. But I also recognize that this could cause some anxiety for you if, if you grew up in a particular tradition and there were, there were some um, absolutes that were attached to how you read Genesis. Like when you start to think about taking those off, that could also cause anxiety. And so I just recognize that not everybody sees the way that we're doing this the same way. Which is very Hebrew of us because, uh, honestly, the rabbis don't all agree with how to interpret Genesis, right? And, and that's what's really interesting about the tradition of uh, the rabbinical tradition is that there are schools of thought when it comes to interpreting the, the scriptures. What's really interesting about that, though, is that they don't see that as a problem. They see that as an opportunity, So the schools interact with each other, not in order to prove right and wrong, but to grow as a community in understanding their story. And I think that that idea of curiosity, uh, the idea of perspective, that I have a particular perspective when I approach God and life, and you all have particular perspectives, and that neither one of those has to be right or wrong, but they can be really helpful when our curiosity says we all grow when we're interested in knowing more about another person. That just doesn't happen all the time within the tradition that I came from. It was about right and wrong, and who's the enemy, and who's the people we can trust, and don't read that author because they're gonna lead you astray. And, and so just like, it's, it's, for me, the way that we're doing this allows us to expand our understanding of what God is doing in the world, what God is doing through his church, and how we can all grow together through this process. The rabbis, uh, in, uh, in school, when, when children would first enter into to school and they would, start, they be, would begin to learn the scriptures, one of the exercises that they would do is that they would have the student go to the very first line of the very first page and begin reading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, wait, 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 start over. In the beginning, God created, start, oops, start over. In the beginning, God, start over. (laughs) In the beginning, God. And then they would say, if that's all we can come up with through this text, that's enough, right? 
if we can just anchor our faith in the reality of Yahweh Elohim, who created the heavens and the earth, then their other questions are okay, but it's okay too if there's some mystery there because we know in the beginning, God. And that's where we start this morning. So if you'd just pray with me before we enter into the text. God, we thank you for the reminder this morning that you are on your throne that we do not dispute that. There's nothing we could do to intellectually remove you, to experientially uh, uh, push you away, um, that you are the one who is in the beginning and you are even now holding all things together. And so our task this morning is how do we know you? How do we experience the goodness that you have for us? I thank you for our time of worship, the reminder that we are embodied people, that it's not just our mind that agrees, it's not just our faith that assents, but it's our heart that longs. That's how you've created us. And worship is this opportunity for us to be reformed as uh, oriented creatures to our creator. And as we make our way through the world, we are being told stories, lower stories, earthly stories, fleshly stories that try to drag us away and try to capture our desires in lesser things. And then you call us back. And you've called us back this morning. And so I just thank you for the opportunity to hear the stories again. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to do what we did the last couple of weeks with... uh, the text, and I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes and hear the text read. I don't have it uh, on the screen just so that we can imagine the story that's happening um, as it's unfolding. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Of all of the the beginning stories, this one for me is the most troubling. 
This has the most um, mystery, the most questions. I would say sometimes the most um, theologically uh, perplexing questions about who God is and what he's doing with these people in this, in this garden, right? I mean, like, there's trouble in this, in this story. Chapter 1 is a beautiful expression of God's poetic and masterful design in creation. Chapter 2 gives us an explanation about why humans are here, what we're supposed to be doing. But chapter 3 introduces this dilemma that has lots of questions. When you heard that story, were there any questions that came to mind? Any mysteries? Anything that you're like, now that's an odd thing, I think there's a lot. I have a list of them, and I'm not going to share them with you in first service. I have, a, I have a bulleted list here of all of the problems I have with this text. And there's a lot going on in the text. Um, and some see chapter 2 and chapter 3 as the same, a continuation of the same story. And it's helpful, again, we don't speak Hebrew, but it's helpful when we look at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 and just a couple of words that are there, words that are actually a little bit odd. You wouldn't think, nakedness seems to be very prominent in this story. I don't know why that seems to be the best description of what is very good and then what went wrong, but the author thinks nakedness is important for us. It says it a lot. And I think if we look, pay attention to that word and we also pay attention did anybody, was anybody surprised by the talking snake? <laughs> Eve was not, right? That seemed normal to her. Like, let's just have a chat. Is it also problematic that they, we'll get onto that. So let's just, <laughs> let's slow down. Let's just slow down. <laughs> so we have a walking, talking snake. We have a tree in the middle of the garden, which is definitely the tree of life, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil might have been there, which begs the question, is it fair to put trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food and desirable for gaining wisdom and then say, don't touch them, right? The dialogue between, God, between what God said, what Eve said, the centrality of nakedness, all these things, they're, they're problems. Where was Adam? Where was God when all of this was going down? Right? So let's look at the text um, again, right there at the very end. The man said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. These are interesting words that are used to describe both the serpent and the people. In the Hebrew, you, what you're going to hear as you hear this read is the word for, unash, uh, for naked is arom, right? A-R-O-M-E. The humans are naked. We're going to play with this in the, in the English here in just a second. But the humans are naked. They are a Rome. The serpent is crafty. It is a room. So when you're hearing this read, the humans are a Rome. The serpent is a room. And then as a listener, you pause and you're like, wait a second. Which one's naked and which one's crafty? Right? You go back because you can't quite understand it. So if we translated this into our English to try to get there, it would be nude and shrewd. Right? You'd, hear, you'd hear that play that's so close, and the author is trying to say, pay attention, because nakedness and shrewdness is going to come into play here in just a minute. We need to pay attention to it. Now, immediately in our, in our English translation of this, what we do 
is we look for context to find the right word. Now we know the story is long enough and we know that the snake is deceptive, but we don't know that immediately upon, uh, upon encountering this in the story. Eve would not have immediately had any reason to be worried about this. The music would not have shifted when the serpent showed up to say, this is a bad dude, watch out. Not immediately, the word was neutral in the Hebrew. Here are some positive uh, uses of the word arum, fools, show their annoyance at once, but the arum, the prudent, overlook an insult. The prudent, the arum, keep their knowledge to themselves, but fools, fools' hearts blurt, blurt out folly. All who are arum act with knowledge, but fools expose their folly. That's a positive use of the exact same word. Context helps us bring it into our language so that we know if it's positive or negative. Here are a couple of negative examples. He thwarts the plan of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty, very negative sense. Now, when we translate it, because we know the context, we give away the story a little bit too quickly, and I think we lose a little bit of what's going on here with the, with the woman and the snake. She has no reason to fear this, this talking animal. This talking animal has more craftiness, more shrewdness than that of the other animals, which means the other animals have some of it too. This one's talking. Do all of the animals talk? We're not really sure when we get to the text, but we know that this one is a higher level of the lower beasts. And he walks into the room, walks into the, the space, and engages Eve with a question. And it seems like we are either interrupting a conversation or the serpent has some prior knowledge of what's going on because it immediately challenges the notion that there is something wrong or dangerous with the garden trees. Do you see that? How does this serpent know what's going on with the trees? And it does this by asking a ridiculous question. Did God really say that you can't eat any tree in the garden? Because the question is about the trees and what God said. Somehow the serpent knows something to that this point only Adam has been told. Eve's response to the ridiculous question is to correct the error, but with an additional error. She rightly responds based on God's original restriction. We may eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden. That's right. But we must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Hold on. The tree in the middle of the garden was the tree of life. That tree was not off limits. The tree that was off limits was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree, we could infer, was in the middle of the garden, but it didn't have to be based on the way we were introduced to it. But now, regardless of where that tree was in God's garden, it had become the center of Eve's garden, right? The serpent, crafty as it is, continues to challenge Eve. You will not die. In fact, the opposite will be true. You will become like the gods, knowing good from evil. And the suggestion is that for some reason, God doesn't want you to know this uh, will result in eating from the fruit. And so now Eve sees the tree is good for food, is pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. Which makes you go, where are they? They didn't go anywhere after the conversation started. Were Adam and Eve just kind of like walking around the tree? <laughs> don't touch it. I don't touch it. Don't. I mean, it almost feels adolescent at some level, doesn't it? 
So, something inside Eve saw an additional benefit. The original instruction from God was that these, these trees are good for food and that they're pleasing to the eye, but then Eve sees something more. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. And that word, that word wisdom is also, or I'm sorry, that word desirable is also very close to the word that is used to describe the serpent's craftiness. So she takes some and she eats it and she gives some to Adam who finally shows up or steps up, but it turns out he was there all along and he eats it without objection and immediately their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. Now we're going to come back to a lot of this next week. This is going to be a two-parter, right? We're going to do part one and part two, but uh, we're going to come back to a lot of it next week and try to answer some of these other questions. But it seems like we have a bookend to the story. We have they were naked and unashamed at the beginning of this. And we have they were, um, they re- their eyes were open and they recognized that they were naked and they were ashamed and they hid. So you put those two things together kind of as the, as the front and the back, the beginning and the end of the story that's trying to be told here. There are two things going on that I want to pay special attention to. Um, the first, and this is what we're going to talk about today, is the idea of desire that leads the woman to eat the fruit. And then next week, we're going to look at the effect of how that desire, when it is played out wrongly, relates in sin, and then the disruption that happens in the created order because of that. So this week we're going to talk about this journey of desiring, and next week we're going to talk about the effects of sin in the cosmos and how we are experiencing those today. Does that sound like a good idea? Anyone? Anyone? I've got nothing else, so... uh... Um, So, let's get back to the story real quick. Did you notice how similar the serpent and the humans are in the telling of the story? Walking, talking, reasoning, that's that's what human beings do. Um, There's a lot of questions there for sure, but this particular beast was more shrewd than any of the other animals, and it would suggest that they all had some level of that arum. And Adam, ironically, named this thing. Remember at the very beginning when God said it was not good for him to be alone and so he brought all the animals through and Adam named each one of them and the goal was to find someone who could help him in a particular way but for Adam no suitable helper was found, no etzer, no helpmate was able to be found. So Adam has named this thing whatever it is. But the story I think is highlighting something that's different about the human animal and the beastly animal. And that difference appears to be the capacity to make decisions that are motivated by desire. The beastly animals and the human animals all share the same impulse, but there is something about the human that's different. It has the capacity to limit itself. The God of creation and the first telling of the story is a God who knows when to rest. He knows when to say enough. After six days, he rested. The humans made in his image, his idols, or his icons, as we saw last week, are created to demonstrate to the creation who God is. The beasts are going to be helpful in the work that they do, but they are not suitable for the image-bearingness of humans. And it seems like the difference between the two is the capacity to self-limit, to say enough. The beast didn't think that there was anything wrong with having everything that was available. Why wouldn't you eat it? 
It's there. It's good. Let me break it down a little bit. I have a, I have a poodle at home. And uh, he and I have been uh, managing the house as we wait for Nicole to come home, his favorite. Um, but if I took the dog food out of the container and I set the bag of dog food in the middle of the living room and I said, now listen, Cooper, he would sit really good. I said, listen, you can't eat the dog food. Before, and this is, this is a guarantee, before I was out of the room, the food would be gone, the bag would be gone. He, he doesn't have a capacity to self-limit. If it's there, I'm eating it. That's right? Now, if when my kids were home and younger, or, when, or if grandkids show up and this one day there will be another cookie jar, if I took the cookie jar down and I put it in the center of the living room, and I said to my children, now listen, I will be out walking in the cool of the day. <laughs> and you go about your day playing and having fun and playing with your toys. There's plenty of snacks in the fridge. Just don't eat the cookies. There's a chance that they wouldn't do it. There's a chance that they would actually just be like, okay, Dad. Well, sounds like a good idea. Now, um, some might say that this is just a cruel test. <laughs> and that has certainly been a conclusion that's drawn from the story. But what if this is really about helping the humans to differentiate themselves from the beasts, right? That this is an exercise in saying this is how you're different. You're more than a beast. And you're a di you're, the difference in being more than a beast, the fundamental part of your image bearingness is your ability to say enough. Huh. Huh. So let's unpack that just a little bit, okay? Eve's desire is what moved her. Cognitively, she knew what the boundaries were, right? She had heard the instructions, so she knew what was right and what was wrong, right? She knew what she could do and what she couldn't do. She answered the question. Experientially, she knew that she could trust God. She had faith, right? So she had the right information. She had the right inner desire to trust God. But then there was this gut-level impulse, this desire in her that moved her to action. And this, we have to believe, is actually a good part of our humanness. Some would say this is the essence of our humanity, the center of human gravity of what it means to be human. And I'm going to recommend a book. There's a picture of it up here. This is the best book I have read so far. There's probably better ones out there. But when you want to explore true spiritual formation, Christian formation, and a deep dive into the, the human as a desiring person, this is, in my opinion, the best one out there. Desiring the Kingdom, James K.A. Smith. And he argues that we are embodied creatures and that the center of our personhood is not our head, but our heart. Or simply put, he would say we are what we love. And according to the Genesis account, this is not a flaw. It's a feature, right? It's built into the creative design. We were made to love. We were made to long for, to desire as a way of expressing our truest nature. This story is about, in part, how we are created higher than the beasts. We are image bearers who have the capacity to self-limit and to say enough is enough. So why do they get punished? If this is the way God made us, did they get punished for being themselves? 
And it's here that I see the fundamental dilemma in my own life, and I think this describes the human struggle and the cosmic dissonance that we experience. Who or what is the object of my desire, and whose voice will I trust? The fruit was made for eating and enjoying, but it was never meant to be the fulfillment of the desire of the humans. And in fact, when they misappropriated the fruit, it became the thing that consumed them. Did you see what they did? They covered themselves with the leaves of the tree. Fear and shame entered into the story through their misappropriated desires. It fully captivated them. Has that ever happened to you? Your desire for companionship, maybe, might lead you into a relationship that all of a sudden becomes the thing that consumes you. Like, why haven't they called? Why haven't they read my text? When are they going to call? When are they going to read my text? When they said X, Y, and Z, what did they really mean? Blah, 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 blah. When can I see them? My desire for companionship is God-given, but when I misappropriate my desire to be satisfied in something that's lower, not higher, all of a sudden it consumes me, and it's all I can think about. Addiction is an example, probably the worst example of what happens when we just need to take the edge off or escape for just a minute. And pretty soon, we are wrapped. We are wrapped in the thing that we thought was going to set us free, such that we're not even sure anymore what it was that we were looking for in the first place. We just get caught up. We give the woman such a hard time down through history of the church First off, Adam's silence is deafening, and God's absence is troubling, but I got to just say I can relate to the woman. I experience the temptation of my desires all the time, and like the woman, I can negotiate a way to justify my actions. Isn't that what she did? We, we can't eat from the tree. We can't even touch it. If I told my son... Son, I'm going to go walk in the cool of the day. The cookie jar is in the middle of the living room. Don't eat any of the cookies. And I left. I could imagine that if my daughter came in and she said, cookies, and Tucker said, no, 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 you can't have any cookies. You can't even touch the cookie jar. The impulse to protect her would be to exaggerate the instruction in order to make sure that she didn't do the thing that she wanted to do, which would give her license, and she would say, he would never say that, and boom, a handful of cookies would come out. We use this mechanism of exaggeration to negotiate around the prohibitions and to justify our grabbing of the apple or the fig or whatever that fruit was. Come on, you're saying God doesn't want me to be happy? Seriously, are we all just supposed to sell everything we have and live in cardboard boxes like, like homeless people? Are you kidding me? We exaggerate the prohibition in order to give ourselves permission to go around God's best for us and take from the thing that we really want. And what happens is we end up clothed in that thing in the bushes. The real question then is whose version of the good life to which these desires are rightly pointing us will we listen to? 
That's the question behind the question in the story. There are two voices, right? God and the serpent. Two voices have spoken. There are two versions of the good life that are being put out there. Trust God or become like the gods. Which voice will we listen to? Which voice do we trust? And to put just a finer point on it, we have heaven and earth together in the garden. God's presence is there. There is the voice of the divine, the heavenly voice, and the voice of the beast, the earthly voice, the higher and the lower together. This is the dilemma of humanity. Do we trust the voice of God or the beast, which is oftentimes in us, the creator or the creation? The Apostle Paul, when reflecting on this story, this dilemma, summarizes it like this in the beginning of Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For all they, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Uh, it became lower, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. We do this replacement thing all the time. And what did God do? He did what he did in the beginning. He gave them over in, give to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served creator thing, created, created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. He just summarized the first three chapters of the, of the story. And I want to take a minute just to, just to say this, that... Um, our desires are good. God doesn't want us living in the bushes, right? He wants us to fully experience all that he has given us. He just wants to make sure we're rightly focused. And so this, just um, really briefly, is going to uh, kind of summarize why we do spiritual formation the way that we do it. So the approach that we take as a church to thinking about who we are becoming has to get beyond the intellect. I have to get beyond just a convincing argument about something. And then I also have to get beyond just faith, just belief in something. But it has to get down into that deeper place of our guts where what, who we really are comes from, which is our desires. And because we live on this side of Eden, we are being culturally formed to satisfy our desires, as Paul says, in mortal images. That's how this world's been distorted. Pictures and images that present a vision of the good life, but in reality are futile and dark and without power. Our gods are material. The images are what move us and form us at the deepest level. It's why I can describe a loving and nurturing relationship to you, but when you watch your favorite rom-com, something else happens, right? You're moved. But this, uh, this formation, this work that's doing is really a reworking of the deeper parts of our humanness, which isn't always a natural process. In fact, the suggestion of Jesus is that we are all in need of help and that one of the reasons that he left was to send the helper, the supernatural presence of God in the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then is the formation power that influences and reshapes our desires. And if you remember, uh, in the listing of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul gives in Galatians, the last one is 
Self-control, the ability to say enough. God understands, Paul understands, Jesus understood that on our own we're in trouble, but that we need help from on high to reshape and reform that which is good and focus it to the place where it belongs, not on the lower story, but on the higher story, not on the created things, but on the creator of all things. This is the process of formation. Retraining, the goal, retraining is the goal of spiritual formation in the way of Jesus. And Jesus' invitation to us is to experience the good life. And that's why we regularly speak of practices and habits as the way that we go about being reformed. Not about more information or new information, but about taking the things that we already know and believe and putting them into practice with disciplines and activities. Here's a, here's a, a, a silly example of, I think, what we're trying to achieve. When I was in college, my college basketball coach said, he had this theory that you, your percentage of winning goes up when you make more free throws than the other team shoots, okay? So he's doing math. Because of his commitment to that, start of every practice, 100 free throws, and you record how you did. End of every practice, 100 free throws, and you record how you did. But he would also do this. In the middle of practice, he would just all of a sudden randomly stop and send us to the free throw line to shoot 10 free throws while we were out of breath. What he was trying to do, you see, is shape a pattern of being on the basketball floor so that when there's five seconds left and we need one of these to go in, we're not thinking about, like, where do we put our feet and how do we hold our hands? That's already been ingrained in us. And so the idea, simple example, but the idea is the same, that what we have to do is train ourselves in such a way that when the desire comes, when the temptation is there, we instinctively know to move towards our God rather than towards that. That lower story. That's the goal of the life that we've been given with Jesus. That's hard work. <laughs> it's not easy. It's a process. It's going to take us our entire lives. But we do think that we can, we believe that we can experience the freedom that comes from finding our, our full satisfaction in the one who made us. And the Genesis story offers us a vision for what can be if we will trust the God of the story so much that we will know when to say enough. Does any of this resonate with your experience in life? Does it make sense? Feels right? Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean there's not a big, you know, a lot of work that we, that we have to do. What we're going to see next week is that there's a God who's patient with us, cares about us, and even when we sin, he takes those uh, leaves off and puts clothes on. He's gracious to us. So we have, we have an expansive space in which to do this, but the question then becomes, which story will we trust? Which voice will we listen to? And this is the goal of salvation. This is God's invitation to us to come home and to find our satisfaction in him. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the story, and we thank you for uh, the opportunity to listen to it again, to be reminded again of what you have made us for and the things that you made us for are good. What we want, what we long for is good. And we also thank you that you've given us complete access to find our satisfaction in you. You've revealed yourself through the person of Jesus 
You are revealing yourself right now. There are people here right now by your Holy Spirit whose eyes have been opened, maybe even for the first time, to your grace and your love for them and how you've made them. And there are those, my guess is, this morning whose eyes have been opened again to how they have traded in the higher story for the lower story. But God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for your patience with us. And I thank you for the invitation that Jesus gives us to come home. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.